You finally save enough money for your next vacation. You buy the tickets, board the plane, and sit right next to Satan himself. Soon, you'll find that this man bashes your head in with a hammer in your own hotel room and scatters your body parts. You, my friend, unfortunately met John Martin Scripps, the tourist from hell. Welcome to The Last Supper. Hello and welcome to episode three of The Last Supper, a true crime podcast. My name is Colson Davis and I'm an amateur chef, a true crime junkie, a music and video producer, and a content creator. Every other week on this podcast, I will be telling you a true death penalty case story and at the same time, I will be cooking that criminal's last requested meal before they were executed. This week, we're looking at John Martin Scripps, the tourist from hell, who was known for the body parts murders. His last meal consisted of a pizza, and hot chocolate. Now it doesn't specify what kind of pizza he had but I'm going to be making a meat lovers pizza because he was also a butcher which I think fits pretty well. You can find all the recipes I've written for the podcast at lastsupperpodcast.com slash blog. Today we are also going to be taking a trip out of my kitchen to somewhere very special. So let me show you. We are visiting Mabel's Pizza Shop in Clearfield, Pennsylvania, the hottest place to get a piece since 1967. Now this is my father's pizza shop and he's owned this place for 30 years. And I've been fortunate enough to work here for almost four of those years. I figured to make this pizza right, we should do this in an industrial oven like we have here at the shop. Now I know some people don't have an industrial oven like this at their home, obviously. So in the recipe, I have two methods, one for a pizza oven and one for a home oven. Come visit Mabel's Pizza in Clearfield, Pennsylvania, 614 Daisy Street. Make sure you call ahead and cash only. Now, back to the kitchen. All right, we're gonna be going there soon, but we're gonna start in the kitchen here to begin our story about John Martin Scripps. Let's get into it. On March 19, 1995, a pair of severed heads were found in a tin mine in Phuket, Thailand. Five days later, a pair of legs, arms, and a torso were also found six miles away. At this time, there were no suspects in this case. Meanwhile, in Singapore, a pair of legs were found floating off a pier a few days earlier. Days after this, the thighs and a torso were found as well. These body parts soon to be identified to be Gerald Lowe, a South African man who never returned home to his wife. The police did some investigating and found the last time Gerald was seen was at a Riverview hotel where he checked into a room with a man named Simon Davis. They saw this man fled the country, but they got an alert that he was flying back on March 19th and he was arrested. They searched him and found way more than they expected. They found the murder kit, credit cards, multiple passports, and most importantly, that this man was not Simon Davis. He was John Martin Scripps. John Martin Scripps was born on December 9th, 1959 in Letchworth, Hertfordshire of the United Kingdom. His mother was Jean Scripps, who would stay home and take care of his sister, Jeanette. His father, Leonard Scripps, was a truck driver. John would accompany his father on his trucking trips, and he grew very close to his father. Unfortunately, when John was only nine years old, his father committed suicide, which left John and his sister with their mother. After this, John started developing dyslexia, which affected his reading and writing skills, and he eventually dropped out of high school at the age of 15. At this point, John started traveling. He would find odd jobs wherever he traveled and sometimes found and sold antiques to fund his adventures. 
At the age of 15 also, he was convicted of burglary, his first ever crime. He was given 12 months of conditional discharge and paid a fine of 10 euros, which converted and translated to USD is $35.46 in 2023. Hefty, huh? Since he was given this conditional discharge, he wasn't formally convicted because the judge didn't see it as anything major. The charge would also be expunged after the conditions of the discharge were met. However, he wasn't deterred because he was caught stealing three more times by August of 1976. In 1978, he was convicted of indecent assault and only fined 40 euros, which converted and translated to USD is only $120.57. Now, in 1980, John was traveling in Mexico and met a young lady named Maria Pilar Arianos, and they soon got married. They traveled together for two years, but John was arrested and convicted of theft, burglary, and resisting arrest and was imprisoned for three years. John was given home leave, and just two months before he was set to be released, John decided to make a break for it. Home release, or a furlough, is when inmates get to go home and come back to prison periodically, depending on different circumstances. Anyway, he was quickly recaptured and sentenced to three more years for burglary. His wife had enough and divorced him, and she then married a police constable Ken Cold. John was not happy about this and harassed them and even stole some of Ken's clothes on home leave. And I can't believe he was even granted home leave again after escaping the first time. Maria eventually divorced Ken and moved back to her hometown. John was then released after serving his full three years and legally changed his name to John Martin. Now, after this, John started selling drugs and trafficking them from Asia to Europe. He was arrested for possession in Heathrow Airport in the United Kingdom. The authorities searched him and found a key which went to a safety deposit box which contained one and a half kilos or 3.3 pounds of heroin, which in today's money is worth about $1 million. He was sentenced to seven years in London in January of 1988. However, he escaped jail in 1990 and evaded police two months later at the airport by giving them an alias name. In November that year, he was found and arrested and sentenced to six more years, bringing the total to 13. He was in jail for four years and quickly became a model prisoner. He started taking the basic jobs like washing dishes and general cleaning and eventually started doing butchery. He was trained by two other prisoners, James Quigley, his advisor, and another known as Gingy, who was a professional butcher. John was shown how to dismember the animals and remove the meat from the bones. John loved it so much he even told other inmates he wanted to open his own butchery when he got out. On August 20th, 1993, John was transferred to a different prison. John sold all his belongings in preparation for his escape. John applied for parole but was denied, but he somehow was granted home leave two days later and ran away. His mother told the authorities not to release him, but they did anyway. She gave her son 200 euros to flee the country. While in prison, John obtained a birth certificate of a fellow inmate, which he used to obtain a passport under the name Simon Jean Davis. A month later, he made it into Mexico. He then walked into the British Embassy, claimed he lost his passport, and obtained another one with his name, John Martin. On March 8, 1995, John arrived in Singapore. When John arrived in Singapore, he met Gerald Lowe and struck up a conversation with the man. They formed some kind of bond, and they agreed to share a room at the Riverview Hotel and split the expense. Now, Gerald Lowe is a South African tourist who was visiting Singapore to purchase some electronical goods. He was married to Vanessa Lowe, and he worked as a chemical engineer with South African breweries, which is a major spot in his hometown. 
The two then went and rented out a twin-bed hotel room, 1511, which cost them 70 euros, which converted and translated to USD as about $124.69 in 2023. When they got into the room, John quickly got his hammer and repeatedly hit John in the head with it until he was dead. He then dragged Gerald's body into the bathroom where he used a 6-inch deboning knife to disarticulate his body, meaning he cut Gerald at the major joints, two legs, two thighs, one torso, two arms, and one head. And we don't know if he cut him at the elbows since the head and arms were never found. But after this, John went to the front desk receptionist to tell her to remove Gerald's name from the room since John had kicked him out over homosexuality and sexual advances. No questions asked, Gerald's last known location was erased from the records. John then went and withdrew $6,000 from Gerald's bank account at a shopping center. That night, he went and enjoyed a show at the Singapore Symphony Orchestra using Gerald's money. Over the next few days, John withdrew $2,400 more from Gerald's account. With this money, he bought himself an $80 pair of Nike Alpha training shoes and mailed his sister a $490 video recorder. I mean, honestly, if you think about this, this man literally murdered this guy, dismembered his body, and went on a shopping spree. Like, ooh, those shoes are sick. Let me get those real quick. Ah, yeah, look and fly. And oh yeah, my sister's been wanting this video recorder forever now. I should send her this one. This one's really nice. I like this one. Like, what? That's crazy. Anyway, on March 11th at 6.45 a.m., John was seen by security carrying a large suitcase and was seen again 15 minutes later without the suitcase. He later met with a Thomas Cook travel agent to arrange the transfer of $8,500 in cash, an additional $5,000 to be converted to traveler's checks to a San Francisco-based bank account under the name of John Martin. He was informed the transfer would take a few days, so John decided to purchase a plane ticket to Phuket, Thailand for $485 in cash and left that day by 7 p.m. On March 13, 1995, after John fled Singapore, Gerald's leg were found floating in plastic bags off Clifford Pier. Authorities could only see it was a Caucasian male. On March 16th, three days later, a pair of thighs and a torso were found off the same pier. Gerald was supposed to return home on March 12th, so his wife Vanessa filed a missing person report in South Africa where they live. This report was just reaching the Singapore authorities and they suspected the body parts belonged to Gerald. The police were wanting to keep this under wraps though as to not alert the killer of the discovery. On April 1st, 1995, Vanessa Lowe positively identified the body parts as her husband's. Professor Chow Zai Chang, the senior forensic pathologist, was unable to determine a cause of death since there was no head or arms and there was no major injuries on the body parts he did have. He did say that the dismemberment looked professional, assuming the killer was a butcher, a doctor, or some kind of surgeon. Now, as John was flying to Phuket, he sat in a row on the plane along with Sheila May Demud and her son, Darren Demud. Sheila was born on May 22, 1945, and was an administrator administrator at the Pacific Christian School in Victoria on the southern tip of Vancouver Island in Canada. She traveled to Bangkok to meet her son Darren for his spring break. Darren was born on November 13, 1972 and was only 22 years old at this time. He waited for his mother so they could fly to Phuket together. 
This is where they sat with John Martin, going under the alias name Simon Davis still. John struck up a conversation with Darren and Sheila and gained their trust. Once there, they purchased hotel rooms, which were right across the hall from each other at Nilly's Marina Inn facing Patong Beach, or Patong Beach, I'm not sure. The next morning, the Demudes were seen eating the hotel breakfast, and this was the last time they were ever seen. John later asked the receptionist to switch his room to the Demudes, claiming that they had left and that he would pay for their bill. On March 19, 1995, John checked out of the hotel and flew back to Singapore to try and finish the money transfer from Gerald's account with the Thomas Cook agent. On the same day, both the Demudes' heads were found located inside of a tin mine, and five days later, two arms, two legs, and a torso were found along the side of a road, 9.7 kilometers or six miles away from where the heads were were discovered. Because the bodies were so badly decomposed, they had to be identified through dental records. The body parts were found to be Sheila's, and the rest of Darren's body has never been found. Upon arriving at the Changi Airport in Singapore on March 19th, John was arrested. John tried to get out of it by showing the authorities his alias passport for Simon Davis, but that was the name that was on the watch list, since that's the name he used to check into the hotel room with Gerald Lowe. He was detained at the airport. John then attempted to break a window and cut his wrist to avoid getting hung. He had this fear since he saw that floor contemplation was hanged two days prior as a sentence for double homicide. Now, that floor name, that's a name, and I have no clue if I'm pronouncing it right, so please, don't come at me. He was taken to Alexandra Hospital in Queenstown for treatment. The police found two passports for Simon Davis, Sheila and Darren DeMood's passports, and Gerald Lowe's passport, along with his own personal one with his legal name, John Martin. All of these had John's picture glued to them. They also found credit cards belonging to Gerald and Sheila and the birth certificate of Simon Davis, his inmate friend. They also found John's murder kit with him. This included a hammer weighing 3.3 pounds or 1.5 kilograms, a Z-Force 3, an electric shock weapon, a can of mace, two pairs of handcuffs, a pair of thumb cuffs, two police brand foldable knives, an oil stone to sharpen his knives, and two Swiss army knives. Bringing some of these items alone into Singapore is illegal. So John was taken to the courthouse and charged under the name of Simon Davis for forging Gerald's signature on his credit card to obtain the $6,000 he stole on March 9th. Three days later, he was charged under his actual name, John Martin, with the murder of Gerald Lowe. John also faced additional charges of forgery for writing Gerald's signature to acquire merchandise. Also, vandalism for smashing the airport window, possession of an offensive weapon, the Z-Force Taser, and the possession of a controlled substance for having 24 sticks or grams of cannabis. He returned to trial on September 18, 1995 for a preliminary hearing. The prosecution prepared a substantial amount of evidence against John, over 100 photographs, 39 witnesses, and more than 100 exhibits. The magistrate watching over this inquiry ordered John to return to court and stand trial for the murder of Gerald Lowe on October 2nd, 1995. John claimed that Gerald tried to touch his butt while he was sleeping, and when John woke up, all Gerald had on was his underwear. John was startled now, thinking that Gerald was homosexual. John said he kicked Gerald away before Gerald threw the hammer at John, hitting him in the stomach. John then picked up his hammer and started hitting him in the head repeatedly. John then claimed he met his friend at Santasso Hotel where he confessed to the accidental murder. His friend then went to the hotel to dispose of the body in the river. 
He then traveled around in a dreamlike state, saying, quote, I'm not sure what was the next thing I did. Everything was such a blur to me after this incident that I was walking around in a dream world for the next few days. When asked who his friend was, John said, quote, I cannot tell you his identity because if he knew, he would harm my family back in Britain. But John did say he was a drug trafficker around 40 years old that he met smuggling drugs in the 1980s. John then agreed to meet his friend again on March 15th in Phuket to obtain the Daymood's passports claiming he never met them. When asked about being a butcher, John stated, quote, I may have worked in the prison butchery, but cutting up a human body is another thing. When I saw the photographs of Lowe's body parts, it made me feel sick. John doubled down with the story of self-defense, claiming he freaked out because he's had to fend off sexual attacks in prison, once in Israel in 1988 and once in England in 1994. When the deputy public prosecutors Jennifer Marie and Nurul Rashid asked him what he had done after the killing of Gerald, John stated he couldn't remember much and that he drank heavily and consumed Valium. He kept medicating himself until he was arrested, stating again that he didn't kill the Demuds and he only came back to Singapore to clear his conscience. The prosecution then started poking holes. They cast doubt on his inability to recall certain events since he had very neat handwriting replicas of the Demuds signatures on a memo pad in Phuket. They also challenged that the friend never existed, using a receipt John signed on the night of March 8th, which was when John said he met up with his friend. John tried to recalibrate and said he only tried calling his friend that night. He called the Buford Hotel and the Shrangri La Rasa Resort, two hotels he thought his friend was staying at. However, he was informed his friend wasn't in either. When looking at his itemized hotel bill, they confirmed that he did call both of these hotels, but on March 10th, not March 8th, as he claimed. His friend then supposedly called him back that evening to say he moved to a different hotel in Marina Center in downtown Singapore. He supposedly couldn't remember if it was the Marina Mandarin, the Oriental, or the Pan Pacific Hotel. So, because of this information, the assistant superintendent Gerald Lim and his team acquired the names of all single males who checked in or out from all five hotels on the date of March 10th, 1995, producing a list of 150 men who checked out of the Beaufort and the Shrangi La Rasa Resort on the day in question. Then, these names were cross-examined with the names of those who checked into the three Marina Center hotels. Mr. Lim testified that none of the names overlapped in the registry of the hotels, but he did agree with the defense lawyer's observation the friend of John Martin could have used different names for different hotels, and in that case, the results would be inconclusive. Two statements were made from the hotel chambermaids who described a strange smell in the room where John and Gerald were staying, room 1511, when they cleaned the room between March 9th and 11th. Then, the hotel security guard said he saw John leave the hotel in the early morning of March 11th with a large suitcase and return 15 minutes later without the suitcase. These statements backed the prosecution's theory that the body of Gerald was left in the room for several days until he disposed of the body on the 11th. They presumed that John murdered Gerald to swindle him, and it was not an act of self-defense. They then showed receipts from John's shopping spree using Gerald's credit card to rebut him walking around in a dream state as he claimed. John testified that he had previously taken photocopies of other people's passports with his own photo affixed so he could attempt to cash their traveler's checks, which reinforced a financial motive for the murder. The prosecution called attention to the similar factual evidence between the murders of the Demuds and Gerald. They invalidated John's defense in saying he killed Gerald in 
in self-defense by showing he received financial gain for their deaths. These were the similarities. John met Gerald at the Changi Airport and shared a taxi to the hotel. John met the Demuds at Phuket Airport and shared a limo to the hotel. John and Gerald shared the same hotel room. John and the Demuds were in adjacent hotel rooms. John testified to killing Gerald with a hammer. The Demuds' skulls were seriously fractured, which could have been caused by a hammer. All three victims were expertly disarticulated. John kept all three victims' credit cards, traveler's checks, and personal belongings. John forged Gerald's signature on multiple documents. John practiced writing the Demuds' signatures. And John glued his photograph on all the victims' passports. Now, with this, on November 7th, 1995, Judge T.S. Sinathure adjourned the trial for three days to debate his verdict. The judge found that the prosecution clearly dismissed John's versions of events and found John Martin guilty of his crimes and sentenced him to death. The judge stated, quote, I'm satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Martin had intentionally killed Lowe. After that, he disarticulated Lowe's body into separate parts, and it was he who subsequently disposed of the body parts by throwing them into the river behind the hotel. On the evidence, I had no difficulty to find that it was Martin who was concerned with the deaths of Sheila and Darren and for the disposal of their body parts found in different sites in Phuket. The disarticulation of the body parts of Lowe, Sheila, and Darren have the hallmark signs of having been done by the same person. Altogether, the similar fact evidence reinforces the decision I have made, for it puts beyond doubt that Martin is guilty of the charge of murder. The sentence of this court upon you is that you will be taken from this place to a lawful prison and taken to a place to be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Wow. Strong words there. <laughs> With that, John was taken to prison. On November 15th, 1995, John declared he would appeal the sentence. However, four days before his appeal, which was scheduled for January 4th, 1996, he withdrew his request without explanation. He then turned down his last chance to live when he denied submitting a clemency petition to the president of Singapore, saying he was impatient to be executed already. In John's final days, before he was scheduled to be hanged, he had written a bunch of notes, including love poems he wrote to his ex-wife. However, I'm not going to bore you with the whole thing. However, a lot of the notes had major misspellings and many grammatical errors. The first line of one of the notes says, quote, one day poor, one day reach, which I think is supposed to say rich, but who knows with this man. But you can look up the rest of the notes on your own time if you'd like. A couple days before, he had a dream about committing suicide and getting out of his penalty. He recalled his dream in another note. Again, I won't read the whole thing, but here's the last line of it, which I think is hilarious. Quote, I woke up in darkness and felt a heavy weight on my chest. I cried out, Mommy, I am here. Oh boy, John, what a baby bitch. I'll say that. John was interviewed by a criminologist, Christopher Barry D., four days before his execution and explained in detail how he murdered and disarticulated Gerald Lowe. John's mother's final words on the situation were, quote, Whoever he is now, he's the person that the prison system trained him to be. These bastards have no right to take my son's life. I brought him into this world. I am the only person who can take him out of it. Wow, there are a lot of strong words being tossed around in this case. My lord. 
And with that, on April 19th, 1996, John ate his last meal consisting of a pizza and a hot chocolate. In that early morning, he was heard crying in his cell. He resisted the guards, so they bound him with leather straps. He proceeded to shit his pants before getting dragged to the gallows. A hood was placed over his head and the noose around his neck. The trap door swung open and he fell, breaking his neck. The executioner miscalculated the fall length and because of this, John's head was almost ripped off. He swung there along with two heroin traffickers who were also hanged with him. John's body was taken and cremated. His remains were taken by a family member who spent the night with the ashes in the Riverview Hotel, where John murdered Gerald Lowe. His body was then scattered in England at an unknown location, and with that, his sentence was served. Wow. Just... Wow, that was such a crazy case. You know, like, what a vacation nightmare. Honestly, like, this case really plays into, like, a lot of our fears of, like, leaving our house, going out in the world, going somewhere you don't know, especially foreign countries. You know, like, it really plays into those fears of ours, and it's it's scary out there, man. And this story really, really hits that home, you know? But uh, it's really crazy. What he did was freaking brutal. Um, and it's crazy I haven't heard about this case before now. The fact that he has three or four more unconfirmed victims, that is crazy and also scary. But I guess we'll never truly know about those victims, but come on. There, it's definitely hits me. Anyway, enough about him. Let's eat. All right, let's do this. <clears throat> oh, baby. So I made three different pizzas. This one looked pretty good, so I kept it a little cold, unfortunately. All right, nice structure of the dough. I like that. Taste it. Mmm, that's really good. Mmm. Got a very nice crust. Sauce is really good. All the meat on top gives it that extra salt you need. Delicious. Perfect. I love it. Mm. It's delicious. Time for our hot chocolate. This seems really hot still. Really hot. Holy fuck. Ugh. Holy shit. Don't do what I just did. Holy shit. Hmm. That's pretty good. It's got a real thicky, like not a thick, but a really rich chocolatey taste. It's not overly sweet. Marshmallows go really good. Gives a nice cream to it. That's really good. And you can control the sweetness with this recipe. You can add more sugar, less sugar, more chocolate, less chocolate. It's all up to you. And I really like the not super sweet hot chocolate. This is amazing and I love it. <clears throat> Honestly, the weird combo pizza hot chocolate, but uh, together, separate, they're delicious together. And you can find the recipe for this at lastsupperpodcast.com slash blog. All right, and that concludes this episode of The Last Supper, a true crime podcast. Thank you for watching. Wherever you're watching or listening, make sure you subscribe or follow me. You can also give me upwards of a five-star review on most platforms. I would highly appreciate that. Let's get this show up the charts and moving. Um, I recommend you watch this video next. It's our first episode about John Wayne Gacy. I'll see you in that episode. But until then, make sure you enjoy every meal because you never know when it'll be your last.